when we talk about uniform appearance, your personal, appear, uh, your personal appearance extends beyond the simple fact that you have to wear a uniform. It extends to how you wear the uniform. and People judge you based on their first impression. If the uniform looks bad, if it's dirty or smelly, uh, the immediate impression is that the officer is not professional. Alternatively, those who wear the uniform properly demonstrate a sense of professionalism that is visibly apparent. This then establishes for us the link between personal appearance and the concept of professionalism. And we look at professionalism as a moral imperative in criminal justice. Think about the old guard of the U.S. Army. They're the ones that guard the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery, or the Marine Corps' 8th and I barracks in Washington, D.C., especially their silent drill team. If you've ever seen them, or seen YouTube videos of uh, that group, and, and every detail of these soldiers' uniforms is perfect. They are so perfect, they are almost like toy soldiers. I've had the honor of getting a behind-the-scenes tour at Arlington National Cemetery at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Uh, the soldier who spoke to my group in their room where they get ready for their final inspection before they go out, uh, walk out into the public, described the painstaking effort towards perfection. He said that these soldiers may regularly spend eight hours or more shining their shoes. Their self-discipline and attention to detail is impeccable. And it is for this reason that people look at them as sort of the par excellence, uh, uh, the, the perfect standard that is of all soldiers, at least in respect to how they look, their sense of professionalism in that uniform appearance. The strict paramilitary standards of many state police organizations has historically set them apart in appearance from local law enforcement officers. The photograph that I use um, to introduce this aspect of the module is that of the Kentucky State Police. There's a reason that others in law enforcement Kentucky, uh, in Kentucky commonly refer to them as great gods. Uh, they uh, have a particular command presence. It's very visible in their uniforms. Uh, the uniform sets officers apart from the public it is full of symbolism, and yet, like any tradition, these symbolic objects are intermixed with practical elements. For law enforcement, uniforms make it easy for citizens to, to identify officers. It is against the law to impersonate an officer. The construction of the undercover officer implies that officers, uh, when an officer conceals their role, they are undercover. Citizens get angry and many questions whether, or many people question whether someone is really a cop if they are out of uniform. This applies to unmarked cars and traffic enforcement as well, as we expect officers to be easily recognizable and in recognizable vehicles. The uniform separates the officer from the citizen, and this causes some issues with communication, which we'll address uh, in more detail later in the semester. Because the uniform is a symbol of authority granted to law enforcement, it's important that it be worn correctly. This is a professional obligation. 
and because each individual represents a part of the larger collective, that is the institution of justice, there becomes a moral imperative to wear a uniform professionally. Your personal appearance will reflect on your agency's reputation as well as the reputation of others in the profession. You may hate ironing clothes. You may even choose your wardrobe around items that specifically don't require ironing. But you have you ever thought about the fact that uh, when you put on a uniform as a criminal justice professional, making sure that uniform looks sharp, that it's ironed, it becomes part of a moral imperative because it is. The obligation is more generally described as part of that officer's command presence, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which is highly valued in law enforcement. Interviews with cop killers suggest they size the officer up uh, in some cases before deciding to go through with their assault. This includes how the officers wear or wore their uniform. Do they look like they are professional and ready to take care of business? Or do they look sloppy and complacent? Is their gig line straight? That's the line from the buttons down uh, to the belt buckle. Uh, is their shirt fitted and tucked? Are their shoes and brass polished to the extent uh, that a poorly maintained uniform might increase the likelihood of a citizen to challenge the officer's authority, further reinforce the moral obligation to look professional. So, what type of uniform communicates the right message? Some debates concerning police uniforms involve whether or not officers should be required to wear hats during their regular duties, particularly a dress hat. The hat, especially the campaign style hat, that's the hat we normally associate with a drill instructor is uh, very intimidating and represents an extension of the uniform adding to the command presence when worn properly. The Michigan State Police have switched between campaign style hats and what's known as a garrison hat. The uh, dress hats are not very practical and yet some agencies consider them a very serious part of the overall uniform requiring them to be worn at all times. Aside from the hat issue, there is some debate as to whether or not it is acceptable for officers to wear anything less than their traditional Class A style uniform. This generally involves officers wanting to wear polo style shirts. In some cases, officers will debate whether it's acceptable to wear shorts during warm weather or BDU style battle dress uh, uh, um, uniforms. Uh, when it is cooler okay, in the inclement weather, even baseball style hats. These arguments pit the practicality of uniform options against their formality, the symbolism, and a more recognizable Class A uniform. I provide a, a few uh, stories, uh, links, and, and different things to think about in this regard. Some people argue against SWAT teams using camouflage military-style uniforms because they appear too militaristic. SWAT teams already represent uh, or present a serious show of the government's power when they are used, and more militaristic uniform options can increase public fears towards the otherwise legitimate necessity of SWAT operations. The issue of militarization and policing is a hotly debated issue. Uh, and following George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police in May of 2020, police agencies should do all they can 
to not overlook uh, the militaristic issues. The outer vest carriers are becoming more popular in patrol, but again, they look more militaristic to some people. Uh, I provide a, a recent example of a news story from Oklahoma where they're considering these, and you might notice if you click on the link how the department is sort of directing the story towards the positive benefits, but in the reality, there are some drawbacks as well. The problem with more militaristic looking uniforms on patrol officers is that it breaks down community relations by making a police officer seem more detached from those they serve, like an occupying force. The President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing 2015 issued its final report, and that report says law enforcement cannot build community trust if they are seen as an occupying force. Part of that image is built on the types of uniforms uh, uniforms officers wear. I provide an image of an Arkansas police officer who's wearing one of these outer vest carriers uh, who got fired for telling two black men that uh, they didn't belong in quote my city in 2018. I've attached a copy of the link to the story which also appeared most national news outlets and while there are many issues with this incident one thing we should consider is when an officer makes that initial contact uh, with someone on patrol, is that the type of image we want to present? The officer looks a little more like he's going into combat in Afghanistan than patrolling a very small town in Arkansas. And that is to say, just like the President's Task Force claims, how does law enforcement build trust if they are seen as an occupying force? While more tactical gear might be appropriate in SWAT operations or high-risk search warrant service, uh, once we relax uniform, formal uniform standards, there becomes a slippery slope regarding what officers should or should not wear on the job. What is the right balance when it comes to uniform appearance? That is debatable, and that's why it's considered an ethical issue, because there's no clear-cut answer. What is clear is that uniforms and appearance influence citizens' perceptions of professionalism and the officer's intentions. And yes, this issue even includes, covers your sunglasses, okay? And so while every profession has a certain expectation towards professional dress and appearance, those who choose to enter the profession of criminal justice give up more of their rights to individuality and to self-expression than those in private sector employment. You do not only wear a uniform, but you must conform to certain grooming standards. Uh, if this is something that troubles you, you may want to consider another profession. Furthermore, once you put on a uniform, you must recognize that the proper care of the uniform demonstrates your professionalism. Professionalism is an important value in criminal justice because it is tied to public trust, a necessary component for legitimacy of the criminal justice system. Someone cannot claim that they value or they can't claim that they are a professional or that they value professionalism uh, while having a dirty, unkempt uniform. Therefore, having a professional uniform appearance becomes a moral duty. And so we'll move from that into the third section of, the, of this a very long module compared to many of the other modules, but trying to cover uh, as much ground as I can here uh, 
on the care of the self. And so we talked about the physical care of the self. We've talked about the importance of looking the part and the uniform and personal appearance. And now I'm going to move on to mental health. Society expects that police and correction officers not uh, suffer from major mental health issues that would impair them from their ability to do the job. To ensure that officers are mentally fit for duty, most states require some type of psychological screening for applicants. M. Coles requires uh, Michigan law enforcement officers to, quote, be free from any mental or emotional instabilities which may impair their performance of essential job functions, dot, 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 or which may endanger the lives of others or the law enforcement officer as assessed by a professional such as a psychologist or a psychiatrist. While applicant screening processes uh, exclude those individuals with disruptive mental health conditions, criminal justice organizations generally do a poor job identifying and managing those who struggle with issues once employed. The cumulative stress of those working uh, in criminal justice is well documented. Job-related stress is associated with a variety of problematic behaviors, and more officers die each year of suicide than those who die in felonious assaults. In 2018, 159 officers died of suicide compared to only 55 who were killed by a felonious assault. The NYPD had a particularly difficult time in 2019. I provide a, a few links related to that. And it, 2019 was basically a difficult year across the country. Uh, again, several links to different news stories are provided. Congress passed legislation in July of 2019 aimed at providing help uh, for preventing suicides among police officers and other first responders. Illinois passed similar legislation aimed at preventing first responder suicide. Uh, provide a link to their bill. Um, several other states following suit there. In our series on the proper care of the self, we must give attention to the issue of mental health. This requires us to discuss several key issues. First, hypervigilance. I'm going to talk about each one of these in particular. Second is PTSD, probably the most common, uh, commonly recognized uh, by folks, and then cynicism. Recognizing whether you are mentally fit for criminal justice work is important for those who are considering the job in criminal justice, but even if you are, uh, quote, mentally fit for duty, preserving your mental health over the course of a career is equally important. Recognizing when you are not well and being willing and able to seek help becomes a moral imperative as you can become a danger to yourselves and others. Untreated mental health issues can affect your work performance and it can cause serious, devastating problems at home. Ultimately, taking care of yourself includes both physical and mental health. And uh, let's start with hypervigilance. Hyper is a prefix uh, used to describe excessive, over, above, uh, what is considered normal. In this case, we're talking about an excessive level of vigilance. Vigilance is that awareness or attention to our environment, particularly potential hazards in the environment. Hypervigilance, therefore, is defined as a state of heightened awareness accompanied by behaviors that aim to prevent danger. Some people might simply say that cops are a little paranoid, but hypervigilance is distinct from paranoia. 
in that it is based in realistic fears. For many law enforcement and corrections officers, hypervigilance is a survival mechanism. The potential dangers of the job are reinforced through academy training, through field uh, training officers, and through personal experiences. So officers are taught to never let their guard down and constantly be aware of their surroundings. Officers have to be hyper aware of their environment and often feel as though they must consider worst case scenarios in social interactions. For example, ask a police officer if they ever sat with their back to the door. Uh, they will most likely tell you they never sat with the back to the, to the door um, so they can see who enters the room and be ready for any potential threat. Ask an officer if they go anywhere off duty without their gun. Uh, because even off-duty officers generally still psycho feel psychologically uh, feel anyway as though they would need to take immediate action if they were to see something that requires law enforcement intervention. They feel vulnerable if they are not armed. When officers are hypervigilant, they uh, live by the belief that every person they encounter represents a potential threat. Uh, a citizen with their hands in their pockets may have a weapon. And then again, they may simply be nervous and not know what to do with their hands. Officers are taught to guard their social distance, usually maintaining a minimum of six feet. This is known as a reactionary gap. Standing tactically uh, towards potential threats where you're bladed with your hands in front of you. There are other nuanced behaviors that become part of officers' routine interactions sometimes without the officer even being consciously aware uh, of their own behavior pattern. This psychological state of hyper-awareness or hyper-vigilance mixes with the fact that officers must manage stressful encounters with citizens and clients. These dangerous encounters further reinforce the perception that hyper-vigilance is a good skill to have. And this mindset is not wrong or bad, but it has psychological and physiological consequences. Stress causes the release of certain chemicals in the body, such as adrenaline. Increased heart rates and blood pressure are some of the physiological consequences of hypervigilance. After several hours in a hypervigilant state each day, officers may feel mentally and physically exhausted. This causes the individual to crash after work and therefore ignore other aspects of life and self-care. They check out at the end of their day and they don't feel like they have the energy to do the things that they once enjoyed, such as engaging family or hobbies. And this is a problem. Dr. Kevin Gill Martin uh, wrote a very well-known book, Emotional Survival in Law Enforcement, in which he describes the process as somewhat of a roller coaster ride between states of hypervigilant and hypervigilance and the state of exhaustion. Dr. Gill Martin is a cop turned psychologist, uh, and he suggests that the roller coaster ride combines officers' over-identification with their police role, something we'll address in more detail in later class, in a way uh, that negatively uh, affects their intimate and family relationships. This causes additional life stressors, which can lead to more serious mental health issues. To break this cycle, Gil Martin suggests officers develop a good physical fitness routine. Work, uh, working out helps push these stress chemicals out of the body. 
this helps regulate emotion a little better and he also suggests that cops should not hang out with other cops while off duty. When you associate with your coworkers off duty, you tend to talk about work-related things, which can repeat the stressful experiences. Instead, he suggests officers should have non-work friends and purposefully engage in activities with them. Furthermore, he suggests the cops should have hobbies um, that provide them some meaningful outlet to concentrate on rather than work-related issues. The consequences of hypervigilance in corrections and law enforcement officers are not necessarily well researched. Aside from the physiological and the mental stress it places on officers, it seems reasonable to believe that hypervigilance could be one cause for police officers' overreactions in certain circumstances. Uh, you do not need to look too far through the news accounts to find situations where officers grossly overreacted to the circumstances. These overreactions captured now more frequently thanks to cell phone cameras often appear absurd to the viewers. While we have to be careful not to assume that we know all of the facts uh, or what a situation looked like or felt like through the officer's eyes, we should consider whether uh, life in a hypervigilant state causes officers to overperceive a threat of certain situations. The answer to the question is not clear. But does hypervigilance sort of interrelate with these overreactions? Generally speaking, officers tend to be white. Racial minorities, non-white officers, represent 27% of officers nationwide, but in jurisdictions serving uh, less than 100,000 citizens, uh, which includes 97% of police departments in the country, only about 20% or less of officers are racial minorities. And so the question here is, does this hypervigilance, does this overreaction, does it interrelate also with implicit bias? One issue um, that has been widely discussed in recent years, whether or not officers might be implicitly biased against racial minorities, particularly against uh, black male citizens. After the shooting death of Michael Brown, um, Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, this issue gained more attention. And Michigan actually has implicit bias training class for law enforcement that is offered throughout the state and more uh, recently, of course, the death of George Floyd touched off another firestorm of protest across the country and around the globe, uh, again emphasizing the issue and reigniting the cause for major police reform. Part of that relates to um, dealing with implicit bias. Implicit simply means that the officers are relatively unaware of their own biased perceptions which is um, why it is also called unconscious bias. It implies that the officers either come to the job with biased attitudes or are conditioned through repeated contacts with minorities uh, and the culture within policing uh, to come to view racial minorities with additional suspicion. According to Nick's and colleagues, 2016 research has produced 
mixed support for whether implicit bias actually seems to affect officers' decision-making in deadly force encounters. Regardless, this issue is worthy of discussion as research is still ongoing and following Floyd's death, this research will likely increase. Can implicit bias training help reduce the likelihood that officers react out of an unconscious bias towards racial minorities? We currently don't know the answer to that question, but the hope is that the more consciously aware we are of our own biases, the more likely we are to both overcome those biases and to compensate for it with conscious decisions based hopefully in reason and not racial uh, or other prejudices. To combat the long-term effects of hypervigilance, Gilmartin suggests including, again, maintaining regular workouts, maintaining hobbies, other interests outside of work, being careful not to over-identify with the role by associating only with other officers. Taking vacation time is also important. Some officers are slow to use their vacation and others uh, leave time from work. As a supervisor for 12 years of my career in policing, uh, it's my personal experience that officers who take more vacation time tend to seem more relaxed, more able to manage the work-related stress. It's important to create positive interactions with citizens. Officers, develop, or officers who develop more positive interactions with citizens are also less likely to perceive everyone as a threat. And they may be less likely to overreact uh, in enforcement encounters. And finally, we need to recognize that our own biases might intertwine with a heightened state of awareness and try to consciously safeguard our own behavior, making sure that we make or we're making rational decisions based on observable facts. Final issue to address with uh, mental health, actually we have two more to go. Uh, the next issue rather is a post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this one, everyone pretty much commonly recognizes the concept of PTSD. Uh, they're at least generally familiar with it, but psychological professionals use this. Uh, it's a formal diagnosis in their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, that they use to address mental health. Uh, it is well recognized that first responders um, suffer from PTSD that's common. Some reports show as much as 19% of officers have PTSD and perhaps as much as 34% have some symptoms but do not meet the full criteria for diagnosis. PTSD can heighten the fight-flight response resulting in difficulty uh, concentrating, sleeping, uh, it can cause effects uh, effect on decision-making, and in worst-case scenario it can lead to self-destructive behaviors, and as mentioned in the introduction, police suicide rates are higher than the general population. You should learn more about PTSD in your psychology course, but what's important for us in an ethics class is to recognize that there is an ethical responsibility to maintain not only the physical health and fitness, but also mental health. And PTSD, like other mental health conditions, is usually diagnosed if the symptoms are causing the individual significant distress and or affecting other aspects of daily life, including your work performance. <clears throat> if um, you are working in criminal justice and you recognize you are suffering from PTSD symptoms, uh, will you be bold enough to get help? Many agencies have what they call employee assistance programs 
which offer free counseling, consultation, and referral services. If you do not get help, the consequences could be disastrous for you, your family, and friends, and for those you serve. In addition to the moral responsibility to watch out for yourself, it's important that there is a, to recognize there's a moral responsibility to help care for your coworkers. The current culture in law enforcement has made mental health issues taboo, and law enforcement leadership uh, has not adequately addressed the challenge of mental health among officers. A few links here provided in the module um, on resources. Most police officers are male. Again, only about 12% of officers are female. And as a result, this com um, and for a combination of other reasons, law enforcement uh, creates an overly masculine occupational culture, whereby mental health conditions such as PTSD are perceived as individual weakness and a potential liability when dealing with the dangers of the job. As a result, individuals often conceal and do not properly report mental health issues. Sad but true. Culture is developed by collective attitudes and opinions. As you take uh, your role in a criminal justice organization, how will you contribute to the occupational culture? How will you engage in the conversation when coworkers are discussing someone's mental health struggles in your organization? Will you be bold enough to tell a friend or coworker um, that you think they should get professional help? In policing, there is a common cultural saying, I've got your six, meaning that you have your coworkers back. But in this hyper-masculine environment, cops tend to focus on watching out for, quote, bad guys when making this reference. What about having your coworkers back when you know they're struggling with mental health issues, potentially thinking about suicide? As we talk about moral courage, it is one thing to consider the moral courage involves your willingness to tell a friend that you think they need professional help uh, in dealing with a mental health crisis. Many people avoid these types of difficult and awkward conversations with those who are closest to them, to us. As a supervisor and coworker, I can tell you I've had uh, to ask several officers if they were suicidal. I found that people have generally uh, been more receptive to you posing the question than you might think, and I have not had anyone get too offended when I asked. Uh, I have also had to refer, order, and even make arrangements for officers to connect with mental health uh, professionals. Your willingness to identify and respond to serious mental health issues for yourself and those around you represent a serious ethical responsibility that if ignored, could be devastating. Cynicism. So there's a famous article titled The Asshole by John Van Manen in 1978. And Van Manen's uh, article opens with an anonymous quote from a veteran police officer, which is worth repeating. I guess what our job really boils down to is not letting the assholes take over the city. Now I'm not talking about your regular crooks. They're bound to wind up in the joint anyway. What I'm talking about are those shitheads out to prove that they can push everyone around. Those are the assholes we got to deal with and take care of on patrol. They're the ones that make it tough on the decent people out there. You take the majority of what we do and it's nothing more than asshole control. 
So says John Van Manen, 1978. Van Manen's introductory quote um, helps demonstrate that many, uh, that many cops are, or at least become, cynical. Cynicism in the temporary sense refers to negative, skeptical attitudes towards others' motives. It has been discussed among policing scholars for quite some time. As the quote implies, it's easy to see how uh, cynical cops separate the police from people who, quote, need the police. In this profession, you may hear someone say, some people need to be the police and some people need to, quote, call the police. This perception of us versus them is also a well-established attitude among police officers' occupational culture. We will discuss this issue in more detail later in this semester. But it's important in this lesson on the care of the self um, in that rookie cops are generally more idealistic, believing that they can change the world, make a difference, and so forth. At some point, though, over a person's career trajectory, cynical attitudes evolve. Cynical attitudes can be very dangerous in that the officer separates themselves from those they serve, leading them to uh, make conclusions such as, these people are animals, a quote from Kelling and Wilson's famous article on broken windows. To the extent that officers may dehumanize citizens uh, can create a situation where it becomes mentally acceptable to treat them as less than human. This is, of course, a distortion that can have serious, far-reaching consequences, not only for the individual, but also for social legitimacy of police officers. This attitude can be nihilistic. Sometimes cynical cops can uh, slow down their work. As much uh, policing involves being proactive, in the wake of Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, Missouri, there was significant reduction in officer self-initiated activities in many parts of the country. So much so it became known as, quote, the Ferguson effect. Fearing the cops doing less in the way of proactive enforcement, crime may increase. There's been a significant effort by policing scholars to understand this phenomenon. We'll discuss the Ferguson effect in more detail later in the semester, but sufficient to claim that cynical attitudes affect work performance, then there is a moral responsibility to consciously avoid having a cynical attitude. Related to implicit bias, which was mentioned earlier, the post-Ferguson era has produced some concern that officers may be slower to react um, to behaviors from minorities because of potential perceptions of racial bias and backlash that they might face in a questionable incident. This perspective is referred to as counter uh, bias. Uh, for an example, you can see Ferdell and Lim, uh, 2016, uh, which describes an underreaction of incidences involving minorities. Uh, like implicit bias, this issue has moral implications. Uh, imagine what the level of cynicism is in the wake of Floyd's death in May of 2020 and the subsequent public protests. Ultimately, I, I would dare to say that cynicism among police officers uh, is likely at a high that we haven't seen in recent history. It's unfortunate. <clears throat> it's unfortunate because many cops are out there trying to do a good job. Final aspect of, of this module is uh, the concept of being a lifelong learner, talking about the care of the self. And uh, in this last section, the focus uh, on the commitment of lifelong learning. Most people hate change 
and we are all creatures of habit. If I named a restaurant where I know you eat, uh, you could probably tell me exactly what you normally get there every time you go. Uh, we like regularity, we like predictability, and we like the comfort of knowing exactly what to expect. As employees, we want to know uh, what is expected of us. But the reality is that the environment around us is constantly shifting and changing, and with it, demands are changing. Uh, we must be okay with change. You would not want a doctor practicing medicine based on the knowledge they developed in medical school in the 1990s. You would expect them to know and apply the best science available today. Likewise, as future criminal justice professionals, there's a responsibility to stay informed and to constantly strive towards self-improvement and a better understanding of your craft. Many states require a basic number of in-service uh, or professional development hours per year to maintain certain certifications, but beyond this, uh, beyond those basics, what are you going to do to improve your basic knowledge uh, or job-related skills? Are you going to commit to being a lifelong learner? In the job interview, uh, I ask you, aside from what you are required to read for your classes, what have you read recently that has improved your knowledge of criminal justice? Would you have to concede that you haven't read anything and stumble around on the question, or would you quickly point to a recent book or article on leadership or community policing or something like that? People who are successful are those people who commit to lifelong learning and self-improvement. As part of the basic care of the self, you have to constantly work towards improving your base of knowledge and your skills. If you don't, don't be surprised when you don't get the promotion or worse yet, when someone pulls you in the office and tells you that you're not performing up to the expectations of the agency. And so there you have it, four basic areas of self-care. Uh, this theme that can easily be chased uh, throughout history from ancient Greece into Western and Eastern philosophy, the care of physical fitness, uh, our appearance as professionals, our mental health, and our commitment to lifelong learning.